Section 4 of That Affair at Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. That Affair at Elizabeth by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter 6. An Astonishing Request. I sat down again and examined my find more closely. I am no connoisseur of lace, yet even I could appreciate the handkerchief's exquisite beauty. But how came it here, crushed into a corner of this chair? Whose was it? Some instinct, or was it merely a delusive hope, told me that it belonged to Marshal Lawrence, that it was she who had left it here, that the tears which dampened it were her tears, tears of bitter, bitter sorrow for dead hopes and a future which had changed from gold to grey. She had stolen into the library for a moment's peace, that she might face her sorrow and decide what she must do. She had left it. But I shook myself together impatiently. All this was merely theorizing. I must lay my foundation first, get my facts. Then, perhaps, it might be possible to build a theory which would prove the right one. Thus far in the investigation I felt that I had been met with evasion rather than with frankness. I suspected that an attempt was being made to puzzle and bewilder me. I could see that my presence in the house was unwelcome to Mrs. Lawrence. Well, my stay would be a short one. I dropped the handkerchief into my pocket, opened the door, and stepped out into the hall. The front door was open, and two men were tugging an immense palm through it. Another was engaged in taking down the wreaths of Smilax. By the tenderness with which he handled them, I recognized the decorator. He stopped and looked at me inquiringly as I went toward him. "'I've come down from New York,' I explained, at the request of Mr. Curtis to assist him in finding Miss Lawrence. "'You, I believe, are the last person who is known to have seen her. I'd like to ask you a few questions.' "'Go ahead,' he said, beaming with self-importance. "'I'll be glad to tell you anything I know, sir.' "'Do you remember what time it was when you called Miss Lawrence down to have a last look at the decorations?' "'It must have been nearly half-past eleven, sir. I remember hearing a clock strike eleven, and thinking it'd take me about half an hour to get through. Did you notice anything peculiar in her behaviour? "'Peculiar? No, sir. She was very kind, and said some nice things about my work. She did not seem sad, nor depressed.' "'Oh, no, sir, quite the contrary.' "'When she left you, did she return upstairs?' "'I think so, sir. At least she started for the stairs. I stepped into the dining-room for a moment to make sure everything was all right, and when I came out again she was gone. Was there anyone else in the hall?' "'No, sir, I think not. Not just at that moment, though of course people were passing back and forth through it all the time. Did you notice a man loitering about, a stranger, middle-aged, dark complexion, with a dark beard or moustache, rather striking in appearance, perhaps a little dissolute. "'No, sir,' he answered, with a stare of surprise. "'I didn't see any stranger about the whole morning. Nobody I didn't know.' I confess I was rather disappointed. I had hoped that my shot would tell. "'And you heard no unusual noise, no scream, nor anything of that sort?' "'No, sir. Though I was so busy and worried, I dare say I wouldn't have heard a cannon shot. When did you learn that something was wrong?' I heard Mrs. Lawrence asking if anyone had seen her daughter. Then she sent some of the servants to look for her. What time was that? About ten minutes after I had spoken to her. Yes, what then? Well, I didn't pay much attention at first, but when the bridesmaids came they raised such a hullabaloo that I couldn't help but take notice. What did Mrs. Lawrence do? Why, she tried to quiet them. I must say she was the coolest one in the house. Except one. Who was that? Miss Lawrence's maid, she just sat there on the stairs and glowered and grinned and chewed her nails and never said a word. She gave me the creeps. I could swear she knew all about it and was glad of it. I repressed a chuckle of satisfaction. Here was better luck than I had expected. 
"'How was Miss Lawrence dressed when you saw her?' I asked. "'All in rustly white. I judged it was her wedding dress.' "'And you say she seemed quite as usual?' "'Yes, sir, only, of course, excited, as any woman would be, though calm, too, and with a sort of deep glow in her eyes when she looked at you. I can't describe it, sir, but I remember thinking that the man who was to get her was a mighty lucky fellow. Did you know her, sir?' "'No,' I said, "'I've never seen her.' "'Ah,' he added, closing his eyes for an instant, "'if you'd seen her then, you'd never forget it. I never will. I never saw another woman to touch her.' And he turned away to his work, with the vision he had conjured up evidently still before him. As I started along the hall, I saw through the open front door a mail-carrier coming up the walk. I hastened to meet him. This was another fortunate chance. "'How many deliveries do you make a day out here?' I asked, as he came up the steps with a bundle of letters in his hand. I could guess the belated congratulations which were among them. "'Only two, morning and afternoon,' he answered. "'What time in the morning?' "'About nine o'clock, usually.' "'It was about that time this morning?' "'Yes, sir, maybe ten minutes after nine. "'Who took the mail?' "'I put it in the box, here, in the vestibule, as I always do,' he said, and suited the action to the word. I watched him as he walked away. So it had not been a letter which had caused Miss Lawrence's sudden panic. That reduced the possibilities to two. Either she had received a visitor or a telegram. I must endeavour to... A voice at my elbow aroused me. Mrs. Lawrence wishes to see you, sir, it said. I turned to find standing beside me the woman who had brought the note to Mrs. Lawrence in the library, the woman whose attitude of malignant triumph had so startled me. I blessed the chance which made it possible for me to question her alone. Very well, I said. "'Are you Mrs. Lawrence's maid?' "'No, sir, I'm Miss Marsh's maid.' "'Ah,' I said, and permitted myself to look at her more closely. She was a woman apparently somewhat over thirty. She had very black hair and eyes, and her face, while not actually repellent, had in it a certain fierceness and hardness far from attractive. A fiery and emotional nature was evident in every line of it. A sinister nature, too, it seemed to me. And I remembered her as I had seen her standing in the library door, exulting in another's misery. I pictured her as the decorator had described her, sitting on the stair, grinning and biting her nails in a kind of infernal triumph. Why should Miss Lawrence have chosen such a woman to attend her? As I looked at her, I saw the folly of attempting to win her confidence. The whip was the only weapon that could touch her, and it must be wielded mercilessly. "'Mrs. Lawrence wishes to see you,' she said again, and I fancied there was defiance in the eyes she turned upon me for the merest instant. In a moment, was it you who found the note your mistress left for Mr. Curtis? Yes, sir, and she glanced at me again, this time with a quick suspicion. It was on her dressing-table, I believe. Yes, sir. How did you happen to find it? I just happened to see it, sir. It was lying in plain sight. Yes, sir. Not concealed in any way, nothing lying over it. She hesitated an instant, and shot me another quick glance before she answered. "'I believe not, sir,' she said at last. "'Of course it wouldn't be concealed,' I said reassuringly. "'Miss Lawrence probably left it where she thought it would be most quickly seen. Don't you think so?' "'Yes, sir, I suppose so.' "'And her dressing-table was a very conspicuous place?' "'Yes, sir, very conspicuous.' "'In that case,' I said slowly, "'it seems most peculiar that the letter wasn't discovered at once.' She flushed hotly under my gaze, and opened her lips to reply, but thought better of it and started hastily up the stair. I followed her in silence, but I had much to think about. What connection had she with Miss Lawrence's disappearance? What connection could she have? Miss Lawrence would scarcely make a confidant of her maid, more especially of such a maid as this. 
At the stairhead I held her back for a final question. "'When did you see your mistress last?' "'When she left her room to go downstairs to look at the decorations,' she answered, so docilely that I was inclined to believe her former defiance wholly my imagination. "'You remained behind in the room?' "'Yes, sir.' "'And she did not return?' "'No, sir.' "'Then how do you explain the presence of the letter on the dresser?' She flushed again, more hotly than before. She realized that I had caught her in a lie. "'I... I can't explain it, sir,' she stammered. "'I didn't consider it any of my business,' she added fiercely. "'I think you'll find it difficult to explain,' I said with irony, "'even more difficult than how it came to lie there unperceived for nearly three hours. "'You'll pardon me if I find the story hard to believe.' "'It's nothing to me whether or not you believe it,' she retorted, and made a motion to go on again. "'No,' I said, "'wait a moment. Which is her room?' "'This one here,' and she pointed to a half-open door just beside us. Ignoring her gesture of protest, I pushed the door back and stepped inside. The room was a large and pleasant one, well-lighted and looking out upon the grove at the east side of the house. There was some little disorder apparent, and over a chair at the farther side of the room I saw a veil lying, no doubt the bridal veil. For the moment I did not seek to see more, but turned back into the hall. "'Nothing there,' I said, as though my inspection of the room was ended. "'I suppose you helped Miss Lawrence to dress?' "'Yes, sir.' "'And she had on her wedding-gown when she went downstairs?' "'Yes, sir, all but the veil.' "'What was the colour of the gown?' "'White, sir,' she answered with evident contempt. "'White satin made very plain. "'With a train?' "'Yes, sir, with a train.' "'Thank you,' I said. "'Plainly a woman garbed in that fashion must be a marked object wherever she went.' Then, seeing that the maid waited for further questions, I added, "'That is all, I believe.' She opened a door just across the hall, and motioned me to precede her. I found myself in a pleasant sitting-room, and looked about for Mrs. Lawrence, but she was not there. The maid went to an inner door, which stood half open, and knocked. "'In a moment,' called a low voice, and I heard a rustle of draperies. Instinctively I knew that Mrs. Lawrence had been upon her knees. But I was not prepared for the deep distress which I saw in her countenance the instant she appeared upon the threshold.' So worn and drawn was it, so changed even in the brief time since I had seen her last, that I scarcely knew her. What had happened? Was her self-control giving way under the strain? Or had there been some new shock, some more poignant blow which she had been unable to withstand? She came straight to me where I stood staring, perhaps a little brutally, and lifted tear-dimmed eyes to mine. "'Mr. Lester,' she said in a choked voice, "'I must ask that this search for Marcia cease.'" End of chapter 6 Chapter 7. Tangled Threads I stared at her a moment without replying. So she was guilty. So she did know. I heard the opening of the door as the maid left the room, and the sound somehow restored me a portion of my self-control. Cease? But why? I asked. Surely Marcia has said that the marriage is impossible, she interrupted. Is not that enough? Mr. Curtis does not think so, and if it is impossible, he at least has a right to know why. Marcia has decided not. She has no wish to bring reproach to the memory of a respected man who... She checked herself, but she had already said too much. Then you know why your daughter left so suddenly, I questioned. But an hour ago you said you didn't know. I did not, then, she murmured. I have no wish to know, I went on rapidly, noting her sudden pallor. I have no right to know, but I am here to find Miss Lawrence, so that Mr. Curtis can at least have a last talk with her. That seems a reasonable demand. Do you know where she is? "'No!' she answered explosively. "'She is not in this house?' "'Assuredly not. I have already told you she is not here.' I fancied perhaps she had returned. 
Such a suspicion is absurd. You've had no word from her? Not a single word? Then it wasn't she who told you the cause of her disappearance? She told me nothing. I had no need to ask who it was. Some instinct told me it was the maid. And you saw her last? When she left me to dress, as I've already told you, I've been speaking the truth, Mr. Lester. Pardon me, I said. I hadn't the least doubt of it. But I'm sure you can appreciate my position, can look at it from Mr. Curtis's side. Perhaps you suspect where Miss Lawrence is, without being absolutely certain. If you would tell me... She stopped me with a sudden gesture. I saw that I had touched the truth. Or at least, I persisted, pressing my advantage, if you know why your daughter fled, you might yourself tell Mr. Curtis. Again she stopped me. The secret is not mine, she said hoarsely. Whose is it? Who has the right to tell? No one. And you will let it wreck two lives? I saw the spasm of pain which crossed her face. She must yield. A moment more, and I should know the secret. Tomorrow. Give me till tomorrow, she cried. Perhaps you're right. I must think. I cannot decide now, instantly. There are so many things to consider. The dead as well as the living. Very well, I agreed. I will call tomorrow morning. At eleven, not before. Tomorrow at eleven, then. And I hope you'll decide, Mrs. Lawrence, to help me all you can. The living come before the dead. She bowed without replying, and seeing how deadly white she was, I checked the words which rose to my lips and let myself out into the hall. The maid was standing just outside the door. I wondered how much she had heard of what had passed within. One moment, I said, as she started for the stairway, and I stepped again into Miss Lawrence's room. It had grown too dark there to see anything distinctly, for this room was not flooded as her mother's had been by the last rays of the sun, but in a moment I switched on the light. The maid stared from the threshold, her face dark with anger, but not daring to interfere. "'This is the dressing-table, isn't it?' I asked, walking toward it. "'Yes, sir,' she answered sullenly. "'It was here you found the letter.' "'Yes, sir.' "'You persist in that farce,' I demanded, wheeling round upon her. She did not answer, only stared back without flinching. I realized that here was a will not easily overcome. "'Very well,' I said quietly at last. "'I shall get along, then, in spite of you,' and I returned to my inspection of the room. There was a writing-desk in one corner, with pens, ink, and paper. I picked up a sheet of paper and looked at it. I dipped a pen in the ink and wrote a few words upon it. Then I blotted it, folded it, and placed it in my pocket. "'Now we can go,' I said, and switched off the light. She led the way down the stairs without replying. "'My hat is in the library,' I said, as we reached the foot, and I turned down the lower hall. The library was even darker than the room upstairs had been, for the trees around the house seemed to shadow especially the windows of this wing. I noted how the windows extended to the floor, and opened upon a little balcony. One of the windows was open, and I went to it and looked out. A flight of steps connected one end of the balcony with the ground, and I fancied from the steps I could discern a faint path running away among the trees. A convulsive sob at the door brought me around. It was the maid who had entered and was glaring at me with a face to which the growing darkness gave an added repulsiveness. The sob, which had more of anger than of sorrow in it, had burst from her involuntarily, called forth, no doubt, by her inability to hinder me in my investigations, to show me the door, to kick me out. I could see her growing hatred of me in her eyes, in the grip of the hands she pressed against her bosom, and a certain reciprocal anger arose in me. "'Here is a handkerchief of your mistress,' I said, plunging my hand into my pocket, and drawing forth the square of lace. "'Please return it to her wardrobe. It's valuable,' I added, with a sudden burst of inspiration, especially so since it's her bridal handkerchief. 
The shot told. She took the handkerchief with a hand that shook convulsively, and I determined to risk a second guess. She left it here, I said. She left it here when she went out by yonder window and ran through the grove. Shall I tell you where she went? But you know. I do not, burst from her. It's a lie. You know, I repeated remorselessly. You followed her there. It was there she wrote that note which you brought back with you and which you found on her dresser. No, no. The words were two sobs rather than two articulate sounds. Don't lie to me. If the note was written here, why did she use a writing paper different from her own? You're playing with fire. Take care that it doesn't burn you. But I had touched the wrong note. Burn me, she cried. You think you can frighten me? Well, you can't. I'm not that kind. And indeed, as I looked at her, I saw that she spoke the truth. Very well, I said. Do as you think best. I've warned you and without waiting for her to answer, I passed before her down the hall, not without the thought that she might plunge a knife into my back. She was certainly that kind. I opened the door myself and closed it behind me, then started down the walk. But in a moment I dodged aside among the trees and hastened around the house. I was determined to follow that path which started from the library balcony. I must see whither it led. End of chapter 7 End of section 4